This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. For those of you watching on CBSN, hello. As always, we are at Tabla Restaurant near Howard University in the nation's capital. For those on the podcast platform, you are our earliest adapters. Always glad to have you with us. And on more than 70 radio stations around the country, thanks for finding us however you do. Podcast, radio, CBSN, it's great to have you with us. You know, I love books on this show. We talk to authors all the time, and we're going to do that this week. Our guest, Tim Mack, he is National Public Radio's Washington investigative correspondent. He has written this new book. I'll put this up for the CBSN viewers. Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA, that is the National Rifle Association. Tim, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Of course, anytime. So before we get to any of the bits about the book, I want you to address the members of my audience. This is a show that is in urban America. It is also in rural America. And in both places, there are members of the National Rifle Association who would say, Tim, why are you attacking me? Why are you writing a book about this organization that I love? What has gone wrong with it that I should be interested in? Talk to them. Well, you know, the thing is, you could read the book and as you've read the book, mm-hmm. and this isn't a book about gun policy or the right way or right position to have about gun policy. This is a book about basic accountability and transparency, right? This is a book about how folks who are members of the NRA who are sending in 5 10 15 bucks a month to this organization that uh, ostensibly is supposed to you know, favor their policy goals, a lot of that money is going for millions of dollars in private jets, uh, lavish meals for executives, trips to the Bahamas, six figures in suits for Wayne LaPierre, the head of the organization. So, you know, a lot of I, I have spoken to a ton of NRA members while reporting out this book. You know, we had 120 plus interviews with people inside the NRA universe, all of whom agree with those sorts of people in terms of the Second Amendment and the right role of firearms in our society. They still spoke to me, and I'm telling many of their stories. You know, as you know, as an investigative reporter, Mm -hmm. one of the basics is gaining people's trust and convincing them, hey, I'm going to be able to convey your stories with fairness and accuracy. And I've been able to do that repeatedly with people who are inside the NRA and, and so on. And when you talk to these people, are they outraged about what has been revealed in terms of this spending? And do they regard it as, oh, just operating a little outside the lines or rank corruption? You know, 
I wouldn't be able to convince folks to talk to me uh, unless there was some deep concern inside the NRA orbit, right? Anger. There's a lot of anger and frustration and a sense of deep betrayal by, uh, by folks inside the NRA orbit that Wayne LaPierre and senior NRA executives have betrayed these NRA members that are out there listening to your station and other, other stations, um, that, that those folks who are contributing, thinking that they're uh, trying to promote the Second Amendment, there's a lot of that money going in a different direction and in, in a direction that most folks probably wouldn't imagine it going. And as I read the book, it's not just a direction that might run afoul of existing law. It clearly runs afoul of the NRA's own rules and procedures. Yeah, I mean, in this book, we really kind of pull back the curtain and give some color to it's, you know, it can get exhausting sometimes reading a list of wrongdoing, right? But what Misfire really does is it brings you inside the room and it shows you the trips and the wild ride that these senior NRA officials have taken on Private their members. Private lavish money. vacations, huge bills run up at pretty expensive restaurants and the like. And not just that, the way they tried to hide it from their own members. You know, you talk about lavish restaurants and meals. One of the restaurants that the NRA senior officials love to go to was this restaurant called Landini's in Alexandria, Virginia. It's this fancy Italian restaurant. And it's, I, I, I mention it because it kind of illustrates one of the ways that they got around the basic transparency and accountability that a nonprofit normally needs to have. They would put their advertising firm's credit card down after spending thousands of dollars at these lavish meals. It would go, the, the bill would be paid for by the ad firm, and then the ad firm would bill the NRA back with, not, with a nondescript invoice, as if they were just kind of servicing their clients. Direct proof that members' fees were paying for these dinners just indirectly. Or well, these meals. As you know, right, nonprofits have to provide public disclosures. They have a greater level of accountability because they don't pay taxes on, on income. And the government gives them that, um, that advantage uh, and says, in return, you just got to be more transparent with the public. About what you're spending about and what what's spending? on and exactly. what's it for. Exactly. Right. And so the NRA and their senior officials were able to hide not only from the public, but even from their own staff who is paying ultimately for these meals and many of the other expenses, whether it's private jets or vacations or whatever. I want to get to the subtitle, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. Is the NRA in the process of falling or has it fallen down completely? Well, I think it's really facing the greatest crisis it's ever faced in more than 150 years of existence. Let's, let's kind of talk through that and, and break that down. Um, we're talking about a revolt from some of its own members who are demanding change in the leadership of the organization, uh, protests from directors on its own board, a financial crisis that's so serious that in 2018, they almost couldn't make payroll. That's a serious problem for any organization. And then they have the New York Attorney General and other uh, investigations into their financial misconduct. The New York Attorney General, after a long investigation, found more than $60 million of misspending inside the organization by Wayne LaPierre and other senior officials, and said uh, in, in, in a lawsuit it filed, that it was going to try to dissolve the NRA completely. Is that possible? I mean, it, could we see in the not-too-distant future a life in America without the National Rifle Association? It's possible. I don't know if it's the most likely outcome. A judge will have to decide. But an interesting historical fact is the NRA was originally founded in New York. 
So the New York Attorney General and its Charities Bureau has jurisdiction over the, uh, the NRA. So uh, it has the ability to ask a court to dissolve the NRA, and, and a court could very well decide that. There's a ton of evidence to support their, their point of view. Some might ask themselves after hearing this for a few minutes, could someone go to jail for this? Someone can go to jail for this, you know? I mean, it's not unprecedented for the leaders of nonprofits who, if they commit uh, fraud in, in regards to taxes, could go to jail. Now, there's been a Wall Street Journal report that says that the IRS is investigating Wayne LaPierre. He's the CEO of the NRA, investigating Wayne LaPierre for potential tax fraud. Um, it, it, and also, Wayne LaPierre, uh, it's been testified to in court that he's expressed concern that he might go to jail. Um, you know, it's a serious possibility. I don't want to predict it happening. Right. Um, but is it a potential outcome? It's a potential outcome. So, Tim Mack, who was the uh, Washington investigative correspondent for National Public Radio, we've got about a minute and a half before we go to our first break. When reading through this book, I saw some explanations from Wayne LaPierre, who's not the only person named, but he's the most visible. In that minute or so, give the audience a sense for his explanation, if there is one, for these allegations. Wayne and I'll give you more time than that, but let's just get it started. Wayne LaPierre is such a colorful character. I'd love to discuss a little bit more yeah. about his personality, what we've learned as a result of, of writing this book, Misfire. Um, but his explanation is often, I didn't know about it. I didn't know who was paying on the other side. I hadn't heard about these self-dealing contracts and the millions of dollars who he, as the head of an organization, you'd imagine, would have to know and should have known. And if he didn't know, he should have asked, right? That ultimately, he's the chief executive officer of a very powerful and controversial organization. And under their rules and under applicable laws, he's supposed to know. He's, he's uh, from time to time, he's signed their financial disclosure, right? That, that, um, uh, he, that he, the, the, supposedly, as the CEO, the buck stops with him, but whenever he's questioned about it, he's been questioned many times about it, uh, he dra- tries to say, I, no one asked me. I couldn't possibly know. But it's a kind of preposterous response and explanation, ultimately. That is the voice of Tim Mack. He is the author of Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. I'm Major Garrett, segment two of The Takeout, in just one moment. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Segment two of The Takeout. We are at Tabla near Howard University, nation's capital. Tim Mack is our special guest. 
He is the Washington investigative correspondent for National Public Radio, author of Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA, National Rifle Association. So you wanted to, and I want to give you an opportunity, Tim, to talk about the character in your book who is prominent in this story, Wayne LaPierre. What do we learn about Wayne LaPierre through this book? So Wayne LaPierre is the CEO and executive vice president of the NRA, ultimately its leader. Um, and has been so for decades, since the early 90s. The book, Misfire, opens with this scene at Wayne's wedding in the late 90s, and he doesn't show up. Uh, the ceremony is supposed to start at a certain time, doesn't show up. His best man is in a car with him, puts a $100 bill on the dashboard and says, you know, I don't think you should get married today either, because Wayne Lapierre doesn't want to get married, and has said that to many of his close associates in the days leading up to the wedding. Ultimately, though, he gets talked into it by his bride and the priest. The wedding starts uh, incredibly late, and it's just this incredibly weird ceremony. Awkward. Of terribly awkward, where you see Wayne on, uh, in the front of the room, unable to make eye contact with his bride during this period. But he ultimately goes through with it. While they're doing their vows and everything. Yeah. He's not making eye contact with the woman he's marrying. Exactly. And there's a reason I tell that anecdote, because it explains so much about who he is as a person and why the NRA finds itself in such serious financial and legal trouble, that a lot of powerful figures in the NRA have figured out that if you bully Wayne LaPierre enough, if you berate him enough, you yell long enough, he's going to eventually assent to, whether it's millions of dollars in self-dealing contracts or... Uh, golden parachutes for former senior officials who leave the organization but get paid incredible sums of money to do virtually nothing. So Wayne LaPierre, would it be fair to say, was placed at the head of the NRA as a figurehead who could be maneuvered, maybe even manipulated? I would say that, that he has survived for all these years, despite never really wanting to be the head of the NRA. His dream is actually to own an ice cream shop in Maine and get away from all this. He's been saying that for decades, that his real goal is to, is to own an ice cream shop yeah, that, in Maine. Yeah, that's a pretty wide spectrum, yeah. Tim. Uh, head of the NRA, ice cream shop in Maine. Uh, the one thing we know for sure is he's remained the head of the NRA. That's right. And, and one of the reasons, I think, and I try to explain this, is that because of his malleability, he's be- become indispensable to so many people who want him there, whether it's the board of directors or... People who personally benefit, monetarily benefit, from his being the head of this very powerful and controversial uh, organization. Um, You're right. There's a real irony to this person who's been described almost as cowardly, being the head of the NRA, you know, an extremely, extremely uh, hot-button issue. uh, Powerful, muscular, all these sorts of things that we project uh, both in mythology and reality about America's relationship to firearms and our culture and our own sense of self. In the the, end, as a person, Wayne LaPierre represents almost none of that as a a living human being. And not only that, he doesn't really like guns that much. That's one of the things... Also filed under irony. (laughs) Yeah, that he's he's much more interested in the politics of guns than than the actual mechanics of guns or using firearms. He's not good with firearms. Uh, In fact, sometimes can be downright dangerous with guns. There's an incident, uh, an anecdote in this book about how once uh, during a video shoot, he, uh, someone called out to him, and he swung around with the, with the rifle or the firearm and uh, pointed it at the person 
who had called out to him. And it's a real serious violation of firearms rules called flagging. Um, and after that, there were a lot of jokes at NRAHQ. Uh, you know, uh, people who weren't doing very well at work were threatened and told, hey, if you don't do well, you might have to go shooting with Wayne. Which could be dangerous all by itself. So I want to address something that's in the book that I've known for a long time and I've tried to communicate to people when they tell me, well, the NRA is powerful because it has money. And I always say there are plenty of lobbyist groups in Washington with lots of money. I say the NRA, it strikes me, having talked to members of Congress for the better part of 30 years, is effective because it has membership. Mm -hmm. And membership who will make phone calls, send emails, protest, do more, and they have actual votes that members of Congress are very much aware of. It's the votes that matter and the advocacy and the personal connection with this issue much more than the money. And you say that in the book, and I want people to understand that. It's not just the money. Money's nice to have, right? Sure. For, for any political advocacy group, it's nice to have. But the NRA doesn't have its position as this fearsome political lobbying group because of money alone. And not even primarily because of money. So like you say, the real fear lawmakers have is their switchboards are getting jammed up by calls. Their inboxes are flooded. They're getting yelled at at town halls. They're getting confronted in their, uh, their districts. That's what they're most worried about. And the NRA can turn out its members to do just that on issues of, of high controversy. There's another thing you bring up in the book that I think is also not as well understood as it might be. That for a long time, the NRA was, not, if not a bipartisan organization, it had ample discourse with Republicans and Democrats. I know plenty of Democrats in the early 90s who were proud if their constituents had on their bumper a bumper sticker that read sportsman for fill in the blank of Democratic member of the House or Senate. Sportsman was a kind of code word for the NRA. Yeah. That is less and less true. And that's also part of what's happened to the NRA in terms of its own advocacy and its own deepening relationship with only one party of the political spectrum. True? Yeah, I mean, Sandy Hook is the big pivot point, not just for the NRA, but also the gun safety movement, the gun control movement in this country. But after Sandy Hook, the NRA takes a, a real aggressive turn to the right, and they decide that they're much less interested in what have traditionally been their most valuable strategic partners, those Democrats who are willing to come to their side. After Sandy Hook, they decide they're going to be kind of not just a gun organization, but a, quote, freedom organization, one that's engaged in the culture war. And that worked for a number of years in order to boost fundraising and membership. Uh, during the Obama years, it was very, very successful. Uh, but that becomes their undoing in the years after that. I want to read the audience something that might blow their minds because it blew mine. This is from page 62 of Tim Mack's book, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. This is right after Columbine, 1999, the first mass shooting at a school in America, a hugely traumatic event in that community and nationwide. The NRA says, through Wayne LaPierre, first, this is a direct quote, we believe in absolutely gun-free, zero-tolerance, totally safe schools. That means no guns in America's schools, period. That is Wayne LaPierre, 1999, after the Columbine mass shooting. Fast forward to 2020 after Sandy Hook, Wayne LaPierre. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun, and the transformation is advocacy for people with guns in schools. Let me read that again. 
1999, we believe in absolutely gun-free, zero-tolerance, totally safe schools. That means no guns in America schools, period. That's the transformation you're talking about. Yeah, I, the, the transformation I'm talking about is this big, long-standing tension between the NRA's lobbying arm and folks that are in, responsible for fundraising and messaging and membership. There's, there's long been this tension, right? Because lobbyists generally have to make legislative compromise. They have to explain the position of the organization. Um, but messaging and, and fundraising folks, they really benefit from riling up the base and getting fundraisers, uh, uh, people to, to send in money and join the organization. One of the chapters in Misfire deals with what the reaction was inside NRA headquarters at, at, at Sandy Hook, during Sandy Hook, and then afterwards. The lobbyists were totally left in the dark. Chris Cox, who's the head lobbyist, or was the head lobbyist for the NRA for many, many years, he's sitting at NRA HQ watching Wayne LaPierre deliver this speech that you just read. Good uh, guy, apart bad from. guy, right. Yeah, um, and he, he marches, that he, uh, he drops an expletive, Chris Cox does, and he's watching the television, drops an expletive, and walks out of the room saying, I can't believe that this is going to be our position after this horrendous shooting in, in Newtown, Connecticut. It's uh, really strange. I mean, obviously the NRA has changed a lot over the years, but that's definitely a pivot point for them. That is the voice of Tim Mack. He is NPR's Washington investigative correspondent and the author of Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. I'm Major Garrett, segment three of The Takeout in just one second. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Segment three of The Takeout. Tabla is our host restaurant. We're great to, great to be back out in restaurants. So happy to do that. Just for those who are curious, watching on CBS, and like, where's the crowd? Where's the noise? Well, it's kind of in between lunch and dinner right now. So it's a time where we kind of have the place to ourselves, which is all right. A little food will be coming. Tim Mack is our special guest. He is National Public Radio's Washington investigative correspondent, the author of Misfire Inside the Downfall of the National Rifle Association, otherwise known as the NRA. I want to get to the documents that are in this book, because there are a ton of them in a moment, Tim. But I want you to help my audience understand where the NRA come from, what are its origins, what was its sort of approach to this conversation in America about firearms for a very long time, Yeah, so in its early history. Yeah, the, so the NRA was formed after the Civil War in the 19th century as a... 1871, ma- right? That's right, that's right. Uh, and it was uh, formed to uh, help with soldiers' marksmanship. At the time, there was this real interesting debate. Um, this is really kind of in the weeds, but like there, at the time, there was a big question among military strategists. Should we even be te- teaching soldiers how to fire firearms accurately? Th- there was this idea with line infantry that you would just mass troops, right. and they would all fire in a volley. And there was this concern among some military officers that teaching them marksmanship would inspire in them unnecessary individualism, right? Um, uh, the NRA's original founders, founding in New York, uh, disagreed, 
and uh, began this organization, which through the 20th century, most of the 20th century, was not an organization that was particularly uh, vocal about firearm uh, legislation. It was just really not its focus. Historically, it's, it's the NRA... It about education. It's about gun firearm safety. Firearm safety, training. It was about gun safety. It was about training. It was about uh, outdoorsmanship. And all those things, I mean, until you, you get to the late 70s. Um, and as w- I read in the book, there were even pieces of legislation that are, constitute what amounts to gun regulations on guns that the NRA passed in the 1920s and 1930s. The NRA was supportive of. Yeah. Historically, if we're going back to, you know, the mid 20th century and before that, the NRA didn't have this hardline position against firearms. There hadn't been a culture firearm in America. regulation, right? Sorry, uh, the fi- firearm regulation. There hadn't been this culture in America where firearms ownership was a kind of identity. Now that's going to change over time, to, uh, to the point where today, you know, owning a firearm is a really critical point of a lot of American uh, Americans and their identity. But this uh, this begins to change in in the seventies. The NRA kind of was interested in even leaving Washington D.C., moving to Colorado, and focusing on its outdoor sports, you know, themes and uh, gun safety, putting behind, you know, uh, putting behind them political advocacy and that sort of thing. Um, but ultimately, there was a revolt on the floor of the annual convention in 1977, and uh, that really changed the whole nature of the National Rifle Association and how they would proceed after that. Excellent. Uh, The food has just arrived. A brief pause for that uh, as we look glowingly at the food that is arriving at the table. Uh, What do we have here? So we have the Adruli Khachapuri. This is our best-selling dish at both of our restaurants. And it's basically a cheese bread from the West Georgian region of Ajata, hence the name Adruli Khachapuri. It's a lot of cheese, egg, butter, and then we just stir it all in there and it's coming right out of the oven so it's going to cook that egg in about two seconds. And then over there you've got beet pali. Pali is sort of a vegetable pate that can be made out of really any vegetable that's in season. So we're doing it out of beets right now. And we've got a couple more things for you. Beautiful. So uh, nice little food interlude yeah. for you foodies out there. You know, that's why you take the takeout for many other reasons. So Tim, documents in this book, what are they and how'd you get them? So this book, some of the backbone of this book is thousands of pages of secret court depositions. That's senior NRA officials saying in their own words exactly what happened as the NRA collapsed. Who was in the room, who said what, what what the room looked like, and so on and so forth. How do you get secret depositions, Tim Mack, investigative reporter for National Public Radio? Well, they're filed filed (laughs) under seal in court, so you're not supposed to have them. Yeah. Um, This book was written during the pandemic uh, in 2020 and obviously in 2021. And, you know... During the beginning of the pandemic, during the worst days, a source indicated that the source was willing to provide some of these documents. You know, public transit is closed, can't get an Uber, can't get a cab, I don't have a bike. So I ended up renting a moped and driving for what seems like hours and hours to the middle of nowhere to this parking lot. The source shows up in the parking lot, rolls down the passenger window and says, the documents are in the passenger seat. So I reach in, taking care, of course, not to breathe into that car. Everyone's reach properly in, masked, ladies and gentlemen. Reach in, grab the documents, 
put them in my backpack, and I moped away. And these documents, oh my God, they're, they're like the gold standard of evidence when it comes to investigative journalism, right? Because in depositions, people have, there are legal consequences to not telling the truth when you're under oath. And they have attorneys there with them. Yeah. So this, this is a process that's both adversarial and also you, you have counsel with you in most cases. You so should. Just you imagine don't. you're working on a project and you have some of the key players speaking for hours under oath on paper transcribed for you describing what happened, who was there, who said what. Um, it was just kind of the gold standard of evidence. And I used that to tell the story of what happened behind the scenes as this whole organization, the NRA, collapses. For those who are listening, you get these documents. They're pieces of paper. Do you go through a process to verify their authenticity after that? Of course. You don't take anything at face value as a reporter. And, of course, you also reach out to the players involved, right? And you say, uh, you, you give them a chance to respond, or you try to ask them for interviews and things like that. Um, those, those are uh, basic things that you do as a reporter. Right. And among the things that you found in this gold standard of documents, what stands out to you most? Gosh, I mean, there's this really climactic scene in the book. Um, and, and we have to back up just a little bit. So let me put it in context. Every climax needs context, for sure. So please. Definitely. So in 2018, like I said before, the NRA had this serious financial crisis, could barely pay the bills. So the NRA does what it's done many times before. Wayne LaPierre reaches out to his old friend Oliver North. You might remember Oliver North mm-hmm. yes, and the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, he's become a conservative luminary mm-hmm. in the years following the Iran-Contra scandal and a real uh, popular person on the right, and particularly among gun owners. So Wayne LaPierre reaches out to Oliver North and says, we need you to join the NRA as president and fundraise and help us get out of our current situation. And just as a quick note, the president of the National Rifle Association is kind of atop this, and the executive vice president and CEO really runs the organization. Yeah, so, so you, you think like... Wayne the LaPierre diff- is the power, and then there's the kind of person above it who is, as Charlton Heston was, a symbolic representation of and a rhetorical focus of the NRA. Yeah, you think of it like uh, the difference between the chairman of the board and the CEO, right? There's, uh, there's the president of the NRA and the president... Um, has long been a kind of figurehead, focused on fundraising, bringing members in, um, but not running the day-to-day. Oliver North was not interested in just being a figurehead. And so he comes into the organization, uh, obviously aligned with the the, uh, NRA's goals in terms of gun policy, but he comes into the organization, he's fundraising, he's trying to dig the NRA out of this hole, and he's he's like, where is this money going? Why are we in debt and where is this money going? Why are there so many problems with this organization? Why are these contracts being signed in such a way and millions of dollars being sent to our lawyers? And what's the, what's the deal here? So he pushes for an internal audit of the NRA. And there's this there's long back and forth between the Oliver North faction of the NRA and Wayne LaPierre and other folks in the NRA. And it all culminates at the annual meeting in 2019. This is in Indianapolis. Donald Trump is about to speak in a couple days. Pence is going to show up to speak. It's, a, it's the most important time of the year for the NRA. And on April 24th, 2019... I'm going to stop you right there, Tim, Mac, because we got to go to break. How we like that? We put you right <laughs> up to the climactic, right up to the climactic moment. Our host restaurant is Tabla. 
It's near Howard University in the nation's capital. I'm Major Garrett. Tim Mack is our special guest. The book, I will show you one more time on CBSN, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the National Rifle Association. Who is Tim Mack? It says right here, National Public Radio's Washington investigative correspondent. I'm Major Garrett. Back for the climactic finish and segment four in just one second. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Our host restaurant, Tabla, Georgian food on Georgia Avenue near Howard University here in the nation's capital, as you can see on CBSN. And you'll be able to hear on the podcast and radio stations across the country, we're going to be getting into our five-platter <laughs> feast. We've got cheese bread. I can't pronounce it, but that's what it looks like. Catfish, dumplings, vegetable uh, pate, pate, and uh, that's squash. Squash, yeah, they're butternut squash. There we go. So Tim Mack is our special guest. Misfire is the book, Inside the Downfall of the National Rifle Association. So we stopped you right before the climactic finish. So Tim Mack, finish the climactic finish. So the NRA is in this dire financial condition. And Oliver North wants an internal audit. And along with you know, some of his allies inside the organization, he's pushing for it. For months, he's pushing for it. He's unable to get it done. And so there's this kind of decision point. Uh, the annual convention in 2019, on April 24th, 2019, um, is coming up. They're going to be hosting thousands of members of the NRA in Indianapolis. Donald Trump's going to show up and speak, and Mike Pence is going to show up and speak. And there's a meeting in a hotel suite, in Oliver North's hotel suite in Indianapolis. And Oliver North looks directly in the eyes of Wayne LaPierre and says... Are you going to help me get renominated as president of the NRA? And Wayne says, really for the first time in the book and for years and years and years, he says no. He says no. And pushes Oliver North out of the presidency of the NRA. And what follows is a really interesting series of events. The New York Attorney General that weekend decides that she's going to announce she's launching an investigation into the NRA. And are those two things unrelated or completely related? I mean, was Oliver North onto something? Is that what you're trying to let the audience know? I think Oliver North was onto the fact that millions of dollars inside the NRA were being spent inappropriately. I don't think he knew the extent to which that was happening. Um, I think that as time goes on, he reveals his shock to a lot of the things that we've been talking about here today, private jets and vacations and meals and things like that. At the time, he was confused about what the, where the money flows in the National Rifle Association were going. Um, and later, through whistleblowers, through congressional investigations, through the New York Attorney General's investigation, uh, and through the work of investigative reporters like myself, all these things begin to bubble up to the surface. And how does the New York Attorney General's office get involved? Were they tipped off? Did they have a sense of things? Or was, was, were they on a fishing expedition? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, 
firstly, there were a lot of, there were beginning to be uh, media reports about what was happening inside the National Rifle Association. But also there was an interesting letter that had been written to the New York Attorney General a few years before uh, by a man who had previously been the head of the IRS's tax-exempt division. That's the division at the IRS that was responsible for nonprofit uh, status. That person writes a letter to the, uh, to the New York Attorney General. Now, you know, you, you've probably read a few nonprofit disclosures in your time. They're called 990s, mm-hmm. the 990 form. They're hard to understand. Who knows what right. line 14X refers to? Of course, this guy named Marcus Owens, he knew. He was the former head of the IRS's tax exempt division. Well-versed in this world. And as he reads these, year after year, these thick packs of documents, he realizes something's not right with the numbers. And he starts to compile all of the evidence a few years before this happens. And what this does is it sparks something that begins to roll. And over the years, culminating in 2019 with the launch of a formal investigation by the New York Attorney General, and later leading to the New York Attorney General, like, like we said, concluding its investigation with a lawsuit against the NRA saying, uh, uh, saying to a judge, you should dissolve the NRA in its entirety. And where does that bring us into current times? If you were to try to describe for a friend or a family member what the current state of the NRA is, what would you say? The greatest crisis it's ever faced in its more than 150 years of existence. I mean, I'm not here to say that, that a judge will dissolve the NRA. But the fact that from a kind of sober analysis perspective, you look at the situation and you say, well, there's clear evidence of misconduct and wrongdoing in the millions of dollars. I, I don't think that's really in dispute. Um, but a judge could dissolve the NRA, one of the most powerful and controversial organizations in all of America. Uh, that's a serious possibility. And any person who's interested in the NRA should pay close attention to that. And Second, Second Amendment rights in general. I think so. Now, we should probably point out that the NRA is not the only group that advocates on behalf of the Second Amendment broadly or firearms rights. There are others. And sometimes they have been to the right of the NRA and pressured the NRA. True? Absolutely. There are smaller groups. But the NRA is the only game in town, really, when you, when you think about gun advocacy. And, and you think about clout in the nation's capital. No one has... Or uh, at the state level. Yeah. I mean, one of the big advantages of the NRA over, the, uh, over many years has been that they were working at state capitals in a way that their opponents in the gun safety movement, the gun control movement in America, just didn't have the resources or ability to do. Um, and the NRA was kind of unopposed at a lot of state capitals, uh, advocating for um, their position at, on, on the level where a lot of these gun rules are actually determined. But I read in the book that's begun to change since 2017, 2018. Well, out, you know, we talked a little bit about Sandy Hook and what happened to the NRA after Sandy Hook. But, you know, the, the failure of gun control or gun safety legislation after Sandy Hook really did rejuvenate that side of the movement. Um, you know, to the point where there's been a massive increase in the number of people who are interested in, uh, in that side of the argument. And are advocating at the state level. And changing laws there. I mean, I'm thinking Sometimes about... Sometimes with Republican signatures as governors. Yeah. And I'm thinking about groups like Everytown and Moms Demand Action, who, uh, if you combine all their spending, in 2018, for the very first time, outspent the gun rights movement 
uh, in political advocacy. That's a remarkable achievement. I think that prior to the last decade, uh, gun rights was so dominant uh, in terms of lobbying that there really was no effective and opposition. Some of that's to with it. grassroots money, and some of that's Michael Bloomberg. Some of that is Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg obviously has been a big funder of these campaigns. Tens of millions of dollars. But remember what we were talking about earlier, right? Right. There's the difference between there's money, money and then there's people. Uh, and it's, it, it's not, it's, it's inarguable that there has been a dramatic increase in the number of people who've been engaged on the gun safety side of the question over the last decade. We have about 45 seconds. I'm going to give you 15 seconds on this. Uh, is there something that people should watch for in this calendar year or the next six or 12 months about the future of the NRA? The New York Attorney General investigation and that litigation is, has led to some dramatic outcomes, including the NRA uh, asking to file for bankruptcy, asking a bankruptcy court to accept uh, its filing. That's a dramatic change and a dra- dramatic move. I'll be watching that litigation really closely. That is the voice of Tim Mack. He is National Public Radio's Washington investigative correspondent. The book, Misfire Inside the Downfall of the NRA. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For CBSN viewers and those listening on the podcast, stay with us for the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Tabla is our host restaurant, Georgian Food on Georgia Avenue. It is very near Howard University, nation's capital. We're happy to be here. Tim Mack is our special guest. Tim is the Washington investigative correspondent for National Public Radio. His new book, first book, by first the way? First book, yeah. Congratulations on Thank your you. first book. The first book is always a huge thing in a, any author's life. I know that because I've written four. Misfire is the name of his book, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. So, uh, Tim, this is the kind of fun and games segment of the program. Okay. We kind of lighten it up a little bit. So, we have three questions. We've asked every, <clears throat> excuse me, every guest on this program. Our audience loves the answers because it gets, lets them get to know the guests a little bit more. So, take these in whatever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life, or one of the most influential books, your all-time favorite movie. And if you're going to be on a long drive, especially like on a moped or something, just kidding. What kind of music, if you're really going to indulge in some music, by artist or genre, are you most likely to listen to? Okay, let's, uh, let's start with uh, influential book. Look, the, um, the book that really influenced the way that I wrote Misfire was Bad Blood. And what's that about? That's about Theranos. It's, it's the kind of investigation into what happened behind the scenes as that organization collapsed. Mm-hmm. I loved that book by John Carreyrou. And um, I really modeled my, uh, my investigative book on that one. Um, obviously, there are similarities and differences, but I wanted to bring the same kind of um, scenes, the same kind of color, um, take the reader 
behind inside the room, inside the room, and 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 tell you who the characters really were. You know, the NRA being such a black box, we don't really know these personalities. I wanted to bring them to life, um, and so it was such an important book for me. And I loved the book when it was written. That when I came to find myself writing my own book, uh, I really used it as a model in in terms of. Um, what the to narrative. get and how to tell it. Yeah, I think in, in terms even of the arc of the book uh, and, and the ups and downs and the pacing, uh, that was really important to me. Um, in terms of music, uh, I, a, cu- a couple things come to mind. Um, Code of the Friend is, is this uh, hip-hop artist out of Chicago that I'm, has a great flow that I love. Um, I'm also a big... First mention. Uh, I'm also a Nearly big five fan. years, first mention. That's really cool. <laughs> I, I'm also a big fan of Pine Grove. Do you know Pine Grove? I Montclair, do not. New Jersey. They're a kind of, uh, they're a kind of indie, indie band. Um, they, they, they've, been, they've been described as like Midwest emo. <laughs> I didn't even know there was such a thing. They're, they're Midwest emo. Midmost, <laughs> Midwest emo indie. Uh, they, they played at the Rams Head in, in Baltimore a few weeks ago and uh, it's the first show I've been to since the pandemic began. Jake Rosen, one of our producers from New Jersey. Big thumbs up there. So uh, you have endeared yourself permanently <laughs> to the heart of Jake Rosen. Uh, and uh, favorite movie? Oh, uh, it's a documentary. Great. Uh, you'll that. remember it, uh, Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, Armageddon is, of course, about uh, the astronauts that saved the world from uh, an asteroid that was uh, hurling towards Earth. Um, my favorite science documentary. Excellent. Is there a non-documentary movie that you would put in your top five? Uh, I don't know. It was not a documentary. Uh, I was joking about that. Armageddon starring, <laughs> starring um, Bruce Willis. Yes. That, that uh, is sort of a variation on a joke that was told on this very show several years ago when someone asked me, major national treasure, documentary or almost documentary, you know? So it's, that, it's in that same vein. So I Armageddon so. is your favorite movie. Armageddon is my favorite Very movie. good. Uh, one last thing before I go, because I want our audience to get one little bit of this NRA thing. You said the black box. There are two different sides or functionalities of the NRA. What are they? Lobbying, and then there's the sort of public representation fundraising side, correct? Yeah, and that's the big tug of war inside the organization. But I think that after Sandy Hook, the PR messaging and the strategists and the fundraisers really went out. You know, um, they decide that culture war messaging is going to get them a lot of fundraising and members. And for a long time, it does, all the way up until Donald Trump is elected. But when Donald Trump is elected, when Republicans are in power, its members feel less threatened. So fundraising drops off a cliff. And that leads when to so many When you're less threatened, you tend to write fewer checks, apparently. Yeah, and, and, so, and so that really, you know, the irony here, right, is that it works, but only for a time. It only works when the NRA is confronting a Democrat in the White House. And is that where things are now? Or is there, is there any functional clout that the NRA currently wields in Washington. It's still, it's still raised uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in the last year we have their uh, public disclosures. It's still there waiting. Uh, and it's got millions of members, which, like I say, is their greatest asset and can be activated. And they're waiting to find out what's going to happen. Yeah, I think there are a lot of frustrated NRA members that are picking up this book to try to learn more about what's happening to their their own beloved organization. That is the voice of Tim Mack. He is National Public Radio's Washington investigative correspondent. The book, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. Tim, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. That's that. See you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. 
That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.